Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. The debate between uh, creation and evolution continues with you know, a number of, of controversies. Of course, there is a, a very large um, view that is held you know, widely across the community that evolution is, is now established as a, as a fact. Uh, I'm reminded again that um, I I was visiting uh, Port Stephens on the east coast of Australia and there was a a game fishing competition and um, this this really large fish had been caught and was being weighed. I I can't remember whether it was a marlin or a swordfish and the... um, the commentator there announced over the loudspeaker talking about the beautiful specimen of fish and how its ability to swim at um, a very high speeds was a result of evolution over millions of years. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is a, you know, a game fishing competition and yet evolution is, is coming in and was, has been... Um, you know, promulgated at that uh, particular time. And, of course, what happens is that this view then uh, affects the interpretation that scientists um, put on the data and the observations that they make. And because the majority of publications, scientific publications, are holding this view, matter of fact, it would be very difficult to get a creationist um, science uh, paper published in a a major secular journal uh, at the present time. Extremely difficult, if not impossible. And one of the reasons is, of course, this particular view or assumption that evolution is fact, therefore everything is interpreted, uh, you know, the evidence must be interpreted in that particular framework. And this makes it very difficult for uh, creation scientists who are finding really good data to get their data out there into the general public to get the powerful evidence that we have that evolution is absolutely impossible and that, you know, the ages of um, the uh, Earth can't be the billions of years that they uh, claim that they are. In fact, just the other day I got a, a, um, an email from a friend who um, had just uh, gone up to New Guinea to do some work for a few weeks and had sent a, an aerial shot of some of the mountain areas um, as they'd taken from the light plane they were flying in. And when I looked at the shot, I could see the the very steep uh, mountain ranges and you can see where the, the, the valleys had been eroded. But the evidence was that the, this was quite, really when you look at it, quite fresh erosion that um, had occurred. It can't be hundreds of millions of years old. Yet if they dated the rocks, they would come out as hundreds of years of millions of years old. Uh, some interesting things in terms of this interpret- interpretation of the data came out um, uh, just um, last year when there was an article 
published, I think it was as recently as um, December, or it might have been uh, November uh, 2019. So quite a, a recent um, report was published and it was titled Fossil Dinosaur Feathers Found Near the South Pole. And this was uh, put up on nationalgeographic.com on the 19th of November 2019, an article by uh, Jay Pickrell. So fossil dinosaur feathers found near the South Pole. Now immediately this you know, says the idea that's established that dinosaurs had feathers and therefore um, you know, this is a major uh, missing link in the um, evolution of birds. And so this is sort of trying to put together the, the story of the evolution of birds because birds appear sort of fully formed in the fossil record and so there's this claim to um, try and establish that the birds evolve from uh, dinosaurs. But when we have a look at the actual data and the actual report, and we actually read through it, were they actually dinosaur feathers and were they actually found near the South Pole? So we need to take you know, quite careful note of this. So the, the title, and this is National Geographic on their site, Fossil Dinosaur Feathers Found. So this is a, you know, a very strong you know, discovery near the South Pole. So let's have a look at what actually uh, happened. What actually happened was a research team in another paper, which uh, was... Um, called uh, Polar Dinosaur Feather Assemblage from Australia and that was published in Godwana Research, Volume 11, November 2019 uh, by uh, Kundrat, M. Kundrat and Al. And what they actually found was 10 exquisitely preserved fossil feathers. Now these feathers were only 10 to 30 millimetres long. So they were from about half an inch to a bit over an inch long. And they'd been found um, over a long period of time. Matter of fact, since 1962, they'd been found um, in the Coonawarra Fossil Bed. And that bed is actually in southeastern Australia. It's not at the South Pole. Where the fossils were actually found was in southeastern Australia. Um, but you see, the, the speculation is that they allege that the feathers, uh, or the fossils of the feathers, are 118 million years old. And they claim that some of them belong to ground-dwelling carnivorous dinosaurs. Now, conventionally, these fossils were found in layers that date from the early Cretaceous period. And so... These scientists had this model when they believed that the landmass of Australia was joined to Antarctica before drifting north to its current location. So that's the, the theory there, that nearly 120 million years ago, that part of Australia, or Australia was actually joined down to the South Pole. And so this is why in the title they have fossil feathers coming from near the South Pole rather than in Australia. 
And so this sort of obviously attempts, I don't know, I guess we mustn't judge motives too much, but, you know, it seems that it makes the story even more sensational. But it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it, that they've just found feathers by themselves. They haven't found them joined to a dinosaur. They've just found feathers. And what they've found them in is in southeastern Australia. And they claim that they're dinosaur feathers from the South Pole. Now, this makes it really, really hard for creation scientists as as we're sifting through the research literature looking for evidence for creation. And here we find the leading journals like National Geographic, you know, promulgating totally ideas that, uh, as science, that really aren't based on the actual but really aren't representing the actual evidence that they've they've found. Um, so of course these scientists think that Antarctic wouldn't have been as cold as it is today, and they speculate that the feathers may have been important insulation, allowing small coniferous dinosaurs to survive through difficult winter months. Now, this is a story that's been put to, together. So. Did they actually find a, um, a feathered dinosaur? No. And, and it's interesting that Dr. Stephen Poropat, spelled P-O-R-O-P-A-T, a paleontologist at Swinburne University of Melbourne, um, he is quoted as saying, to actually find the skeleton of a feathered dinosaur here in Australia would be amazing. And so... They haven't actually found a feathered dinosaur. They've just found feathers and for some reason assumed that um, these feathers came from uh, a dinosaur. Um, and so it's, it seems that you know, there's this idea that birds um, evolve from dinosaurs and so you have an article like this that sort of attempts to support that view. Uh, but it's really a very spurious picture, uh, and, and um, of course they have a, a, a spurious picture of a, a fully feathered dinosaur uh, drawn by an artist. And so when you actually look at the details, the scientific details, they actually do not even begin to support the idea that dinosaurs evolved into birds. They don't even support that dinosaurs had feathers. Um, not that the creation model moves that out. What um, they found, the research team actually again presented no direct evidence that the feathers did belong to uh, did not belong to birds. Uh, also, though, the interesting thing is that those feathers must have been very rapidly covered in sediment to preserve them, and they've been found in the sedimentary rock layer that they were found in. That particular fossil bed also contained a number of other animals. It contained freshwater ray finned fish. It contained fossil lungfish. It contained fossils of various insects, fossils of various spider and acronid type um, animals um, it, and other uh, land-dwelling invertebrates. Um, it had aquatic insect larvae fossils, uh, little... Um, uh, beetle fossils, 
and also fossils of horseshoe crabs. There were also plant fossils found, mosses, fossils of mosses, liverworts, plant, fern-type plants, ginkgo, and even conifers. So fossils of all these things were found all mixed up together with these uh, fossil feathers. And the fact that these feathers were found all mixed up really is powerful evidence for the flood, that there was some massive flood event that wiped out and mixed up all these different types of animals and buried them quickly so that they were uh, fossilised quickly. You know, the the whole dating system as well is is just automatically assumed. Um, Of course... Um, it's noted one of the articles that I read uh, the author wrote this is not the first time that a National Geographic has blatantly promoted the idea of false dinosaur bird evolution Um, there was uh, an Archaeoptera hoax scandal where phony dino feather fossil um, was um, reportedly dug up and uh, published of course, afterwards, uh, it was found that it was a, a fake and they had to uh, recant. Um, and it's interesting, that article over the fake Archaeoraptor, spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-R-A-P-T-O-R, after that hoax uh, scandal, um, Professor Peter Raven... Uh, well, sorry, in a letter to Professor Peter Raven, who was, uh, was Professor of Botany um, at Washington University, and he was actually chairman for the Committee of Research for National Geographic. He was a uh, botanist, but he was sort of yeah, chairman of the committee at National Geographic at the time. And uh, uh, Professor Storrs Olson, who was one of the world's foremost bird paleontologists, He'd worked at the Smithsonian Institute in the United States for many, many years, for decades. And um, he wrote an article asserting that the National Geographic had reached an all-time low for engaging in sensationalistic, unsubstantiated tabloid journalism and that the idea of feathered dinosaurs is being actively promulgated by a cadre of zealous scientists acting in concert with certain editors in Nature and National Geographic who themselves have become outspoken and highly biased proselytizers of their faith. So that is a um, direct quote. Um, and if you're interested in that, uh, that quote, that um, uh, quote is from a book by um, Alan Fedusia spelled F-E-D-U-C-C-I-A, who is another uh, paleontologist specialising in the origin of birds. He's uh, a professor at the University of North Carolina. And uh, he wrote a book exposing the massive, unfounded speculation associated with the discovery of fossils in China and this attempt to uh, promote this um, dinosaur uh, bird evolution link and so that quote uh, by Storrs um, Olson uh, and I'll read it again because it's quite um, it really sums up 
what is what is happening, how some scientists are really just totally promulgating their particular faith. It's not science. They're not they're not uh, promulgating science. They're promulgating something that they want to believe in. And so this other top professor, this is what he wrote, the idea of feathered dinosaurs as being actively promulgated by a cadre of zealous scientists acting in concert with certain editors of Nature, one of the top research journals in the world, and National Geographic, another very popular uh, science um, uh, magazine, who themselves have become outspoken and highly biased proselytizers of their faith. And notice those verses there, highly biased. So they're zealous and they're highly biased. And I think this sums up the whole um, environment that is present in in a number of research centres and universities where they have a particular, you know, idea that that they want to push and they want to prove. And, of course, you know, creationists as well. Admittedly, we want to look for uh, the evidence that uh, supports creation. The problem is that creationists don't have the same, uh, aren't getting the same media coverage for the overwhelming evidence and I think the far superior evidence that we now have for creation. And, of course, this whole bias... Um, where science isn't really science. And I think for the average person in the thing, I think a scientist, he does a result, does a measurement, you know, and that measurement is fact. Well, in many cases, when we do measurements, we get a range of values. And measurements often have to be repeated many times. Instruments have to be calibrated and so forth. And a lot of research is done with instruments that, that aren't calibrated. Uh, might be something as simple as a balance where they're weighing something out or a, a temperature device. Um, I remember uh, back when I was uh, working as a, um, a trainee physicist, we were calibrating thermocouples that were used in some um, experiments where we were looking at um, how steel stretched under high loads at different temperatures. And um, one of the things that we were monitoring, of course, over a long period of time was the, the temperature. And, of course, they were very high temperatures. They were measured using thermocouples. And my job was to um, actually um, calibrate or s- and check that the thermocouples were reading correctly. And to do that, we had certain standards. Uh, one of the standards was the melting point of gold. We used to cut a little piece of gold uh, wire and put over the end of the thermocouple and then heat it up in a furnace. Of course, gold melts at exactly 1,063, I think, uh, degrees from memory. And what would happen is as the thermocouple temperature was rising, as the gold melted, because of the latent heat of fusion of the gold, there would be a little little mini plateau in the calibration curve. And if that curve didn't occur at 1,063, then you knew that the if it occurred when the thermocouple was, say, reading 1,040, then you knew that the thermocouple was 22 degrees out. And I didn't remember calibrating these, and some of the thermocouples were up to 40 degrees out. And the same goes with balances. Now... Um, 
you know, I, I, when I was working at university, I wasn't aware of any of the balances being regularly checked on a monthly basis and calibrated. Yet when I worked in another research lab as the chief chemist there and was responsible for this, we had a program where we checked the balance with standard weights that had been calibrated again against primary uh, weights that were held by national standards in Australia. Um, and we used to do a balance check every month on our balances. So this is the sort of you know level where we're looking at, and I know in a lot of um, you know commercial and little analytical laboratories where the results um, uh, say where the laboratories have national accreditation and would stand up in court, we have very uh, stringent um, calibration for our equipment. But in other laboratories, in research laboratories, it's more or less left up to the to the to the researcher. It's interesting, this comes out a number of, of different results. It's, it's interesting, uh, for example, um, some years ago, um, a volcanic deposit in Kenya called the KBS Tuff, it's a sort of volcanic layer, which was very rich in fossils. Now, it was dated at between 212 to 230 million years old. So it's 212, 230 million years old. However... Because that date did not match the fossil dating, so the fossils were thought to be much younger, the deposit was redated uh, using different samples. And then a new age was published um, of 2.61 million years. And that was data that was um, uh, published in Nature back in... uh, 1970 Um, and so that new date was carried for a while. However then the famous anthropologist Dr Richard Leakey found a modern looking human skull below the KBS tuff so that means that the skull must have been older than the KBS tuff and of course that that being, you know, finding a skull more than 2.6 million years old really didn't fit into the the dating. It was, um, and in that particular layer, it was found 2.9 million years. And also primitive tools were also found. So um, there was a lot more dating done. So subsequently, a study was done by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, again, one of the top uh, secular universities in the United States, and they redated the KBS tuff correspondingly younger at 1.6 million years. And so that result was published in Nature in 1975. Uh, but the saga went on. But over the next five years, further dating studies were carried out, and the tuff was again redated by Australian university researchers and they reported ages 1.87 million years, 1.89 million years, which were more consistent with the ages estimated for the mammal fossils on the basis of the evolutionary time scale. So here we see you know, a classic example of, well, hang on, we've got a scientific measurement. It doesn't fit what we want to believe because we want to believe in this particular evolutionary model. Let's redate it. Um, let's redate and we keep redating it until we get a date that uh, fits. And whoops, and there we go. And when you think about it, 
the the ranges have ranged from 212 to 230 million years down to 1.6 million years and then in the end everybody's happy with the age of 1.87 million years so there's a huge yeah huge range there i give these examples to illustrate that you know in my view a lot of this science isn't science uh, people have got the data they're ignoring stuff that they want to ignore taking on other stuff um, and just when it fits and, and suits them and the you know it seems that their scientists are extremely desperate to find missing links and that's why you know finding something between the link between dinosaurs and birds. They need a missing link. They need somehow to establish how did birds evolve? Where did birds come from? Uh, because they find birds fully formed there. And we find the dinosaurs fully formed, which exactly fits the, the biblical model. It's very hard for creationists to get their information out there. But, and that's why you know, I'd like to uh, remind listeners again that there are some really good websites out there with uh, creation data on them. There's um, the creation.com, so just Google creation.com. That website has a very large number of articles by highly qualified scientists, fully referenced, providing the data um, supporting creation. Also, if you um, uh, Google creation.com uh, in six days as well, my book will uh, come up there where 50 scientists explain why they choose to believe in creation. These are all doctorate-holding scientists, and each of their articles are there. Um, they can all be downloaded or read uh, free there from that particular site. Of course, there's other sites too, like Answers uh, in Genesis and um, uh, Creation uh, Research Society. There are many other groups that have really, really good data there. And, of course, there's also my book, Evolution Impossible, where, again, the references, some of the references that I've talked about uh, today are listed there and more details about these findings. So that's the book, Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. And remember, too, that you can also Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, 3abnaustralia.org.au, and click on the Listen button and re-listen to... Um, Faith and Science and other episodes, previous episodes um, and um, other radio broadcasts that uh, are there, such as Science Conversations, where I uh, go through each of the chapters in the book Evolution Impossible. So these resources are there um, to be used. Um, they're accessible. And Again, if you have friends that have doubts, tell them about these resources because we have overwhelming evidence that the Bible account of how we came to be here is true. You've been listening to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.